Hey guys, welcome to Emotionally Immobile, where we learn to thrive and not just survive. I'm your host, Kayla. And I'm Natalie. Today, we're going to be talking about boundaries, the ones we have with ourselves, with others, and the ones we don't have. Oh, and the ones we don't have. Yeah. Oh my God. That was a good one. Thanks for saving me. I got you. How are you doing, Kayla? It's a day. It's a day. It's a day. It's a day for me too. Honestly, I think I'm recovering from having some poor boundaries. Me too. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Because I think, and I honestly feel like this is one of the most important topics, especially I think for anybody in recovery or in sobriety, just in general, but especially in the beginning of your journey, there's so many boundaries to set for the like first time boundaries to set, boundaries to reset, and like with people, with places, with yourself. And it can be really overwhelming. I mean, I'm six years in and I'm still having to readjust and evolve my boundaries to to what's going on with me at that time. It's not just a, I think, like a one-time thing where you're like, all right, this is my boundary. I'm setting it here. And this is forever. Like they, they change and they evolve as we evolve as people. So I think we can, I, get the, I feel like a good place to start would be talking about, and I know this was a question that was asked too, is they said that they have recently stopped drinking, but their partner still drinks. Mm-hmm. And they haven't had any conversation about having alcohol in the house, having their partner drink around them, and they're afraid to bring it up because they don't want to change the dynamic of the relationship or have their partner be mad at them, which I know I can personally say I've dealt with that. And I feel like a, a lot of our listeners have. Yeah. So basically, so just to clarify, so this person is afraid to bring up boundaries because of the fear of how it would deconstruct the dynamic. So they're comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yeah. In a way. And I, my assumption too is they, if they're a former drinker and their partner's a drinker, then from just from my experience over the last couple of years talking to so many different people, there's a lot of us who that, that's like the center of a lot of our relationships, like not right. just romantic, but our friendships too. So it's like you take alcohol out of the equation and it changes the dynamic of the relationship, especially with your partner who you're living in a home with. And then here you are trying to change your relationship with alcohol, mm-hmm. but you also have to consider this other person and their relationship with alcohol. Unless you're living alone and you can just say, yeah, I'm going to take all the alcohol out of the house. I'm not going to go to any bars. I think it's easier to set boundaries around that when you're not having to think about another person. But in this case, and this person who has this question, who honestly have had this question multiple times, they're wondering what's that next step? Because you can't just live in 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 this space of not saying anything that's going to build resentment that's going to cause more issues down the line i okay this is it's a hard one because for me personally i it's really difficult to navigate an environment in which one of you still drinks and the other one doesn't like ideally i think i would say relationships are just far more efficient when there is an understanding of 
I'm going to choose to value the same value that you have. And I'm going to maybe not do it as often. I'm not saying that you can't do it ever, but I'm going to say that there is definitely... I've had friends. I've also, for me personally, there have been times in my life where maybe since my partner wouldn't drink and I was at a point in my life where I still drank occasionally, I would only do it though in a social setting where it would not be necessarily as triggering to my partner if it was somewhere in our house. So alcohol was not able to be in our environment because our home, our space, it's supposed to be sacred. It's supposed to be a safe place for both of us. And so it doesn't matter if I can do it, if that other person is going to be triggered by a bottle, a cabinet that we put it in, a bar cart, whatever it is, that's something that I have to think about the other person. That's a sacrifice that honestly, like for me in a relationship, like I am more than willing to make. However, at the same time, like you, I would definitely say that I would have a conversation with your partner about things such as the emotional boundaries around alcohol, the physical boundaries around alcohol, the time boundaries. So like, when is it okay for that partner to use alcohol? Is it only in the evenings after you go to bed so that it's not going to be a physical trigger for you like to see it? Is it something where you would like your partner to only or solely use it when they are going out and maybe when they're out with their friends and not necessarily with use? And again, this is something that will evolve with time what you set as boundaries right now, they are not rules to live by for the rest of your relationship. Say you are in the beginning phases of your sobriety or your sober curiosity, whatever it may be. Those boundaries, those limitations that you place, they're only, they're only going to be there like for part of the time as you evolve in your own relationship, you are going to be able to create distance and enough have enough degrees of separation from that substance to be able to reconsider what you're willing to be around and what you feel comfortable. And your partner might do the same. They might realize that it's like, hey, you know what? I am actually really motivated by your sobriety and how you've been feeling and how your personality has changed or for the better, obviously. And they might decide along the way that they're like going to support you in that because they want that for themselves. So I think I would go through the entire list of boundaries. Like we can approach this super straightforward and it doesn't have to be something that's extreme. Like you don't have to look at it as such a very sensitive subject and say, oh God, like I, I don't want this to change the dynamic. The dynamic's going to change no matter what, whether you fear the change or whether you dismiss the change or you stay avoidant of the change, like it's going to keep changing An action and inaction is an action of itself. So not confronting this is still going to make an impact. I would just print out a list of boundaries. There's so many good resources out there. Glenn, Glennon Doyle just talks about it in one of her podcasts about boundaries and what they look like and basically different categories of them. And I would sit down with your partner and use that as a template. You don't have to put the pressure on yourself to discuss this and to create all these different boundaries. You can work on it together and make it so that it fits both of your, um, both of your guys' narratives around how you want to live life. And that way two people or however many people are involved in your relationship, because don't want to poly people, don't want to 
don't offend. So however many, you got to include everybody and what their wishes and what their opinions are whilst also creating something that's good for you and nurtures you. Well, and I have to say too. That was a long-winded answer, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, it's so true. And I'm coming from like the opposite side, right? Because you're somebody who their partner stopped drinking before you. And for me, I had been sober already for multiple years before me and my current partner moved in together. And he's actually somebody I've known for a really long time. We went to rival high schools. We went to the same college. Uh, We've, we have partied together. Like he's seen all the sides of Kayla. And then we ended up getting together eventually. And we had to have that discussion because when we were like friends with benefits, as I think a a lot of people, especially when you're young, you have that it's, that's your relationship. And then eventually it it may evolve. Maybe it doesn't, but what I was willing to put up with was different. And then the relationship evolved into something more serious. And I had to consider what am I okay with? What am I not okay with? This kind of frat slash, we call it here, like the peninsula lifestyle. Just being a single guy in their late 20s. That yeah. doesn't have a that doesn't have a problem with alcohol. And so once again, no hate to people who do drink. But then you have to consider when you get into a relation for for those listening who do drink but you're maybe you're in a relationship with somebody who is questioning their alcohol or who needs to question their it's a good one to put in their there, relationship yeah. with alcohol we really had we butted heads in the beginning really hard because i went into it thinking oh yeah it's not going to be a big deal i'm like 4 years sober it doesn't trigger me i can be out at the bars i can be out with people i'm past that phase But what I didn't take into consideration is that I had been living alone for the past five, six years, Yeah, no alcohol in the house. And also for me personally, like just living alone, like I had complete control over my boundaries, my space. And so moving in with somebody new, which I feel like that's a whole other topic, just like moving in with a partner and having to readjust my boundaries and compromise my space. Right. What I realized quickly was I actually was not as okay with having a bunch of alcohol in the house as I thought. I didn't think it was going to bother me, but it did. It brought up, I don't even want to say cravings, but I think for a lot of us who are sober, they're just like, not even compulsive. Like, I, I don't even know what I would call it, but they're just thoughts occasionally come out like, yeah. right? It's memories. Like for me, I think I would totally. say like memories, like bourbon or whiskey for me specifically, if I see the bottle, it's just, there's a fleet of memories that comes as a result of that. And I just can't look at that substance the same way. Like I can physically understand that it is just a bottle of, of, you know, liquor, hard liquor, but that doesn't mean that there isn't an emotional connection to what that substance represents or what it was. It's almost like, you know, you're, those movies where you literally almost go into your like head and it like zooms past. It's like your life kind of flashes before your eyes. And then like you're hit with this like memory. And like, every single time you remember yeah. that memory, it's like a different version. It's less intense because you probably remembered it multiple times. It's rosier. Yeah. But at the same time, it still doesn't lose its trigger. Like it will always stay uncomfortable. 
So to your point, basically, yeah, you don't know your triggers until you actually find them out. And I think you're always going to be figuring that out. And that's what it is too. And I think for a lot of us, you don't realize, A, A, a lot of us just don't even know what our triggers are or what is a trigger. And then B, you forget. I'm like, what I have, I have a new trigger at four years of sobriety like that. You, you know, nobody tells you there's no manual for each year of recovery. This is what it's going to look like. And there would, there would never be because everybody's journey is different. But basically we butted heads for a really long time. I was uncomfortable. And for, for me too, a lot of it was still built up resentment and a lot of that shadow self. And for anybody yeah. I think listening who isn't familiar with to distill it really quickly is the shadow self is just parts of other people that you see that you do not like. And it is because it reminds you of parts of yourself that you don't like. So if you ever you meet somebody and you're like, I don't like this person, I don't know what it is. But it's because there's parts of them that remind you of the parts of you that you don't like. Maybe they're a little narcissistic. I'm claiming myself here, right? Maybe they're they're a little rigid. Maybe they're a little type type A. Like for me, I absolutely know the signs of like when I meet somebody and I do not like them or like a character on a show. And I'm like, oh, this person's just a bitch. And I'm like, probably because this is like the closest character to myself and the things I don't like about them. But I found that the shadow self was really showing up for me. And it was interesting too, because me and my partner drink differently, but- we finally ended up going to couples therapy and what I realized and what I think especially women tend to do, we tend to over explain. I know I I don't get to the point, right? Like I say, this is instead of just saying directly what I need, I would like you to do this. I say, I would like you to do this because da 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 da, da three hour long conversation. And, yeah. and I'm right, I'm generalizing, but I feel like there's so much literature on this and just the way that a a man's brain and a woman's brain works is so different. And so we ended up having to literally within a a therapy session, just sit down, look at each other, which was really awkward because we were like moving the stuff out of my apartment. We're sitting on the ground because there's no furniture, like crisscross applesauce. Oh, bare bones. I love it. And just say exactly what you want. And I'm like trying to say, no, don't give me extra just say what you want. And I was like, I need there to not be alcohol in the house. Or I said, you can have, you can have whiskey because I, ironically enough, I hate whiskey. So I was like that to me, you can have it. I don't care. It's not going to bother me, but I, we can't have a bunch of beer in the fridge. I was a wine drinker. He wasn't. So that wasn't an issue. But, and then same thing. I, I was like, and I need you to not drink too much around me. If you're going to have a couple of drinks, that's fine if we're going to go out to dinner. But when you get home, you I, I would prefer you not have two or three more drinks. Maybe it's not a lot for you. Maybe you have a higher tolerance. I understand that you don't go and run around naked and do crazy shit like I did. But there's still something to me, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm less attracted to you. And I'm yeah. triggered by the situation. And he just said like, a simple answer. And of course, it wasn't always perfect. And there was compromises still like later on as we got more comfortable. And there were times when we couldn't have any alcohol in the house when I was going through harder times when I just said, you know what, it is 
better for me. And because there have been a couple of times that I have drank in my recovery. And I don't, I I can't say directly that there's like a correlation. Like if there was no alcohol on the house, that this wouldn't have happened. But sometimes I wonder. Yeah, of course you can wonder. You mentioned a really good thing, which is the the concept of over-explaining. And I, just from a psychological perspective, like over-explaining is in a way a trauma response because you fear abandonment or rejection. And I think- you see, well, I do, and I do. I do it myself. Like I, every single time I, I want to say something, I over-explain it, and I, I notice myself, and I catch myself, and I'm trying so hard. I'm almost exhausting myself for the other person not to reject me, not to abandon me, and I'm prioritizing their comfort or their understanding over my own need of just stating what it is that I want. That in and of itself is also like a verbal boundary, right? Like you you can even look at it that way as do you have to over explain yourself to ask for what you need? Is that, are you doing that for the benefit of the other person, for them to understand it, for it to be convenient for them, rather than just stating what you need, what you want, and how it is that person can deliver? That is a completely valid way. It's not a rude way. It is not a harsh way. It is not a bitchy way to ask for what you want and what you need. But I, you mentioned that and I, I wanted to put that out there because I don't think that we catch ourselves at all, especially at, and coming from a female kind of perspective. I think we're mm-hmm. often socialized to really emotionally root ourselves in a situation and see how the like the emotional ripple effects of like how it's affecting every single person and every person's state of being is more important than our own because if we don't look at it that way then we're not kind and we're not caring and we're not nurturing I can go on and on the societal scripts are they're there but that's something that I even think like when you are in a relationship where the other person is drinking or occasionally drinks watch yourself and how you narrate what you need and what you want, because don't exhaust yourself asking for what it is that you need from your partner. Because that's another thing. Like we're talking about a partner here. We're talking about a person that's supposed to be in this relationship with you. And everybody has different set standards based on your narrative of how a relationship should be. There are, it is easy to ask for what you want. You just don't think that it's going to be easy. But really, in reality, saying what you need is as easy as saying, I don't want alcohol in the house. That okay with you? Well, and I think, and I do this with my anxiety, and I feel a lot of us who have anxiety do this too. I don't actually think about what's going to happen next. I stop, my fear stops me at the question itself, rather than asking myself, what's the worst case scenario? They're either going to say, yeah, that's fine. And then we're good to go. And then I have nothing to worry about. Or they're going to say, no, that doesn't work for me, which is what I'm right. you know, afraid of. But then I actually haven't thought out the process of, okay, if this person says no, what does that mean? What does that look like? Where do we go from there? How can we compromise? So it reminds me of this. I, I don't know if it's a well-known technique. Maybe you probably know better, but yeah. I really like this other podcast, the Love Your Anxiety podcast. Oh, and yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And one of the things she, one of the techniques she uses is like the why technique. So you like start the why and then you keep asking yourself the why until you get to the root, right? So Mm -hmm. like, why Mm -hmm. am I feeling this? I I don't like the way that I feel. Why don't you like the way that you feel? And you just keep asking yourself 
until you actually get to a place where you can't ask why anymore. And that's the root. So I, I find I do that in this scenario too. What's the worst case scenario? Okay. They say yeah, no. I mean, okay. What exactly. happens if they say no? How can I compromise? What are my other options? How can I explain to them why this is so important to me without being on the attack? That was something I, I had to learn <laughs> and still learning how to do. I think a lot of us are. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. We're all literally still learning. Communication is just one of those things that you're constantly going to evolve and it's going to change based on your life experiences and your background and how you were raised. We can always be better. I had a thought and then it literally like just dropped straight out of my my head right now. Yeah, you know what? I'll take on a different perspective on this also rather than trying to find my fucking thought that just disappeared. I think that one thing when you were talking though that it made me realize the the questioning of like why. Like super good to even do that prior. Like we don't have to do that like when you're noticing that you're really anxious around talking about boundaries, like don't, don't wait until you have the conversation to do all that prep work, right? There is, you totally have the ability to sit down with yourself rather than just marinating in that anxiety of what's going to happen. What is he going to say? What are they going to say? What's going to be the ultimate conclusion? Sit down, script it out. Like honestly, visualize how you believe that your partner, your friend, your family might even react or respond to what you say. Because, and I say this because I think it's really interesting to see what kind of character characters that we prescribe to the people that are in our life and how they might prove that correct or they might disprove that. We might have this narrative that oh our partner is never going to agree with our choices. They're going to be, you know, frustrated with us that if we ask for something it's going to be looked at as too much. And you're putting on that narrative onto your partner and maybe your partner disproves that. Then you got to ask yourself, where the fuck does that come from? Like, who taught you that people are going to be like that? Because then that's going to make it far more clear as to who's a safe person for you to actually keep around when it comes to you developing these boundaries. And for those people to also be supportive of you developing those boundaries and, and in your corner and continue to inspire you to set those boundaries, especially with the people that are going to be harder in your life. Yeah. Do that prep work. Honestly, if you're nervous about asking for a boundary, like I would say, journal it out and do the why, but then also visualize who you, how you believe that this person is going to respond and then also write down the evidence of what they actually did because you got to start retraining your brain as well. Yeah. Neuroplasticity. Yeah. It reminds me of, I feel like it's a pretty well-known quote that's thrown around social media a lot, but the idea of the only people who are going to be mad at your boundaries are people who benefit from you not having any. Yeah. I, I feel like which kind of brings us into the idea of if you're afraid or if you're getting negative feedback from people in your life about these new boundaries that you need to set in order for you to support and prioritize your new lifestyle, mm -hmm. this is a red flag. Like this is, you need a sign, this is your sign that you need to reevaluate these friendships, these relationships, even these workplaces, because yeah. in order for you to thrive in sobriety, 
you have to prioritize it. You just have to. Like it's not something that you can work on in the beginning and then it gets thrown away. It's like a muscle. It's like yoga. It's like working out. It will atrophy if you decide, oh yeah, I'm good where I'm at. It's not something I don't say, oh, we never recover because I'm not, that's not like my line of thinking, but it is something where it's a mindset. It's a lifestyle. And just like any other lifestyle or mindset, if you're not constantly educating yourself and working on it and evolving and prioritizing it, then it it will atrophy and you'll find yourself in a place where you're at risk to drink again or go back to old behaviors. And that's the reason why you're here because you don't want to do that. And so I think no. it's hard, Yeah. right? How do we, and, I'm, and I think this was another question that we got asked in the email was how, how do we deal with unsupportive people who don't support our new journey? Hi. You can be like me and I'm like, bah, bah, bah. And I, I get that that's hard. I'm very much so, I used to be a people pleaser, but while well, recovering one, I'll say that because there, I still catch myself doing it. But truly, I, I don't, I guess the better question is why keep them? Like, what, what do you mean? What do we do with them? Like, why keep them? What are they doing? What's their function? I always, I started to just flip the script. And instead of asking myself, what do I do? I'm just saying, okay, what's their function, right? I don't mean objectify people. And I'm not saying that people are like objects, but there is something like with clients and therapy, I always ask them, I'm like, look, everybody in a way, if we make them, everything is transactional. There's cost and exchange to every single thing. What on earth do they exchange like at your cost? Like what do they function as? What do they give you? And if they're disrespecting your boundaries and they're making it harder for you to actually heal, what what the fuck is their purpose? Honestly, I don't know if I would keep them around even if they would pick up groceries for me. Honestly, I'd rather do that myself. Like whatever function they might function as nothing is more important than you prioritizing your healing and your wellness. Mm -hmm. So like yeah. My, my therapist used to always like, she used to stare at me and it's like, Natalie, be an educated empath. And I'm like, oh my God. I know I'm trying, I'm trying to be an educated empath and being empathic also means that you have to make hard choices. Like it's not just being empathic towards others. It's being, it's having empathy for yourself. It's, we don't have to look as empathy as a direct thing or a direct behavior or direct action that we give onto others or we show others, we can actually do it toward ourselves. And an educated empath would not allow somebody else to be a barrier to our own wellness, like truly. So I don't know. I would say bye, bye, bye to these people. I would. I'd be like later until you figure out your boundaries and until we can find common ground on what we need. And this is me saying that previous conversations that you've had with this person have not resulted in a productive decision. Yeah. If you're still in the talks of how this person can be in your life, keep going at it. Keep figuring it out. But if they're at a point where they're just being disrespectful and dismissive, gone. Immediately no. Is that a TikTok sound? If I am I a cool kid? It's like immediately immediately, immediately no. no. Immediately no. Yeah. Yeah, that's I me. mean, right. You don't have to just cut 
people off at the at the knees. No, but you do have to have that conversation. And I think this is something that's hard for a lot of people because it becomes a real issue if you're married, if you have children, if there's all this I don't want to say baggage, but if if there are all these other extra things attached to what's going on for you, like example, and I don't want to use any names, but I have a friend who recently left her husband uh-huh. and moved because he didn't support her sobriety. She was sober curious. She knew that's what she needed to do. But she didn't know, how do I leave? We have two kids. And so she went to treatment and she came back and then she left. And I just, I commend her in so many ways because I think there are so many people who stay, you stay for the kids, right? I feel like this is kind of something we talked about last week is that you stay for the kids. You stay because you're afraid of finances. You're, there's a lot of things to consider, right? But at the end of the day, if this barrier is going to stop you from healing, from living a healthy lifestyle, from getting better, then it's not, it's never going to get better. I think people are hopeful that, oh, maybe one day, no. Yeah. I think, but like big whoop-dee-doo-dah for your friend for doing that. Honestly, that is, that's a really big show of strength. And you got some big ass balls to do that. And I want to say that that relationship, despite it not working out, was still extremely purposeful. Mm-hmm. Why? It's because it showed you the, the value that you need to prioritize. And that is like not the thing is, is like empathy or kindness without boundaries is going to lead to self abandonment. And I think that's probably yes. one of the worst things that you can honestly model for anybody, whether it's your partner or for your kids or for your friends, like self-abandonment then leads to burnout. And once you're burned out, like the ladder to climb out of that ditch is just so much, oh my God, it's just so much more. So like the idea that you said, you know what, this is going to be really difficult. And despite its difficulty, I'm going to prevent it though from getting worse and I'm going to be better for myself. I'm going to be better for my kids. I'm going to be better for my partner. Mm -hmm. That is actually an action of kindness, despite it being perceived as something that is, oh, so sorry it didn't work out. Honestly, I'm like, wow, I'm really happy that you made that decision. Like I, again, flip that script. I'm, I'm so happy you had the strength to choose the priority over here, which is showing your kids to constantly choose yourself and choose your wellness. Cause I think that you got to look at what your actions are communicating. What story are you telling yourself, your kids, your partner? Don't. Yeah. I'll stop and there. I, so I can go on with this one. No, it's, it's so true. Cause it makes me, it reminds me too. It's not about people being bad or evil or manipulative, which some people are, but I think a lot of people from their own trauma, from we're we're all separate individuals dealing with something. It's not a validation. It is an explanation. And so when I think about my past relationships too, and, and even myself, when I 
treat somebody a certain way that isn't right or when I'm treated a certain way and I take it, I, I think that sometimes it's because there is a lack of a boundary. And so you go, it's okay. The person's okay with it. And so I'm going to keep doing it. And so it's when we don't set boundaries or when we have a boundary and we allow people to cross it constantly, and this is just in general, you're conditioning that person or this could be relationship, this could be work, this could be friendship. You're conditioning that person to understand that okay, maybe Kayla has boundaries, but not really because she says, hey, don't text me after this time. Or, hey, don't drink this much around me. But then I do it anyways. And maybe she gets mad or whatever, but she gets over it. So you really have to stick strong in your boundaries and you have to say no. And then you have to walk away. And, And you really have to be firm in that because, and it's not a fault. But it's something I also learned from in the past, having a lack of boundaries and recognizing from looking from an outside perspective and taking myself out of the equation and going, well, what is my part in this? How can I change the situation? How can I do things differently? Because I can never control other people and their actions and their behaviors and how they want to treat me. But I can, like you said, flip the script on them. And when my partner goes to have another drink, I can say, hey, I thought we had this conversation. If you want to continue to drink, I'm going to go upstairs and finish watching TV in the room because I've made it clear that I don't want to be around you after you've had a certain amount of drinks. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of of, of like a motto that I have, which is like fix the conflict, not your partner, basically. Mm -hmm. You can never fix another person. You can never change them into the version that you want them to be, but you can separate that and deconstruct that person from what they're doing, their behavior, and you fix the conflict that you have with that behavior. You might not be able to change who they are, but you can change how they go about doing those things. And then also how you react or respond to it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think another question that I we haven't really touched on today, but yeah, I think it's it. also really important, especially in today's environment when we're all work. not everybody, but we are, we're working from home. And it is extremely difficult to set boundaries, especially if you're already somebody who struggles with setting boundaries. I'm no longer getting up at a certain time in the morning and getting dressed and driving to an office and then clocking out at the end of the day and and leaving, there's no separation anymore of work and home life. And even more so, we were talking about this. I was like, I'm, I'm waiting on a new desk. So I'm working from my kitchen table. <laughs> Did you get that desk? Come no, on. <laughs> I know. I'm selling, I'm waiting. I'm selling the desk that I'm on right now. Okay, to good. To get the good. other one in the chair. But it's just, it, it's funny because you find yourself just in this place where I have more free time, right? Like I'm not spending time getting ready or going to a place. And there's such a lack of balance. I find myself working more, which for me, I don't really mind. My productivity has actually gone up working from home. Oh, that's so good for you. (laughs) But, right, it's like lunchtime, right? I had to learn how to turn off my Slack and do not disturb on my phone 
and set aside an hour to eat lunch and to maybe watch some TV or take a nap or walk Winston versus just grabbing some food and getting back on my desk. And I think a lot of people are struggling with that, whether you're working remote, hybrid, or getting even back into the swing of going back into the office because the last two years have been fuckery. And so mm-hmm. now, and this was one of the questions one of our listeners had, they said, when we had asked on on Instagram, and they said, can you talk about setting boundaries when working from home? That would be really helpful. So I would love to talk about how we can, for myself also, yeah, set better boundaries <laughs> when working from home. Because I think there's just, I don't know what the statistics are, we'd have to look it up. But I think there's a lot oh, of us. In, yeah. Are you kidding? Burnout is real. Burnout is a real. It's a doozy. And I also think that like, there are more people that are burned out right now than they ever were before. I also think people realized how burnt out they were when they started working from home and they didn't have the environment of a workplace or a setting like an office space or their cubicle mm-hmm. to... Um, almost induce that fight or flight, that sympathetic nervous system kind of reaction where your cortisol then jumps and you're like, gotta perform, gotta do this, gotta get this, gotta get this over to my boss. Like our environment acts as like a trigger. Either it's a trigger of the calming one. It could be a stress inducing one. It could be a happy inducing one, like whatever. Our settings do that. And when we're at home, we usually associate that with the idea of rest and relax, right? Our parasympathetic nervous system, if we want to get biological about this, is the one that tells us it is safe enough, our environment is safe enough enough to let our guard down. And so when we transitioned into this sort of setting where we're working from home and we're trying to rest from home, I think the narrative that we had around home made us realize, made us comfortable enough to realize how exhausted we were. We didn't have that office setting to, again, trigger us into a state of stress and almost help us dissociate from our level of burnout. To the user that asked that question, I am still struggling with that. I have been, and as a therapist, I feel like a lot of people look at you and they're like, you probably know how to do that. You probably are so good at this. And let me tell you, I really fucking suck at this. I probably like the biggest issue of mine that I'm still trying to figure out. One, I am a workaholic and I know that, and it has been something that has been an issue in the past and has made me unhealthy. And I realize that, and I can be aware about that, but it's still like the amount of awareness that I have around it. It's still really difficult to make those boundaries. So I don't want you to feel alone in that because I think There is this pressure that we have as human beings also living in a society that really prioritizes productivity and product, right? Like we want to be a product that is valuable. And so if we see that we're working 10, 12 hours a day, we equate that with like value, our value to the company, to ourselves, to a narrative that we want to like have about ourselves when it comes to maybe our profession, I would say you have to figure out what you want your job to help you. How do I say this? Maybe even better. Decide what you want your job to tell you about yourself. There we go. Mm -hmm. If you want your job to 
help you understand a certain skill set that you have and validate that. Great. But you have to then put almost like a template down as to what actually feeds into that. If you are literally have no idea how your how your job helps you define yourself or understand yourself, then you have got to first start there. Like, why is it that you do your job? What is it that you enjoy? Why do you choose to take more projects on? Is it actually because you like the projects or is it because you're actually trying to make that person like convince that person, whoever is in charge of that project, that you are of value? Because then that's the problem. That, that deals with like your own self, lack of self-efficacy, your own lack of self-esteem or self-confidence. And that's not something to be embarrassed of. Yeah. Why are you attacking me right now, Natalie? Oh my God. Shut up and sit back. I'm not attacking anybody. I'm probably attacking myself. If anything, I'm like, get your shit together. But in reality, like we all want that. We all want somebody to validate certain things about ourselves that we want to see, but we don't have to burn ourselves out to define a level of success. That to me is, it's not sustainable. And so I guess short answer to this is one, define what it is that you want your work to say about you. And then second, work on specifically the boundaries of time and Mm -hmm. emotional boundaries. Physical boundaries, obviously, it's a little different because you're not going to be going into the you know workspace and everything else. But time is probably the, the biggest one here. What makes you turn off? What makes you turn on? How do you know that you're past the point of productivity where you're not going to have any more like good ideas or you notice that you're almost in a state of like numbness? That happens to me when I am getting toward the end of the workday or honestly not even toward the end because sometimes like at night I'm most productive I would even say three o'clock maybe I'm on ET man I'm like nap time I'm like siesta I'm like this is a perfect time for just for me to sleep and honestly a lot of people don't get that I'm like please can we go back to preschool when everybody would just take naps all day to Europe yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Spain has got it right in this, in, in this area, but you look at your day, right. And you look at how your energy, the ebb and flow of it and get really comfortable with understanding your, also your energetic boundaries, right? Like when do you have that capacity to work? And when do you notice that naturally you just, you start to turn off and turn down. That is when you honestly say, all right, I'm going to prioritize myself over the work that needs to be done because I actually know that I'll probably be able to get this project done faster if I have the energy for it. That's the thing. Stress limits our cognitive flexibility and our creativity. So the moment that we're stressed or we're tired, we're not going to do the task as efficiently as if we were to do it when we are well rested and energetic. So if you want to just do this, make it super easy, logic based. Don't even involve emotions. Just tune into your rational brain and just be like, you know what? Fuck that shit. I don't need to literally keep doing this to prove to myself that I can. I'm going to get this done faster if I tell myself that I can go take a nap. Like yeah. honestly, that's how I trick myself sometimes into taking naps. I'm like, you're going to be more efficient. No, absolutely. And I think with, since I've been working from home, which has been like two years now, Mm -hmm. I've had to set boundaries 
Because like you said, I'm openly yeah. a workaholic. It's a transfer addiction. It's something <laughs> I'm working on. But some, I think, quick tips, things that you can implement like right away while you work on the more internal, deeper rooted work. I started to, and I think whatever you've used Teams, if you use Slack, whatever your whatever your work uses, I went in and I physically set up to where I'm only notified from a certain time in the morning to a certain time in the evening. And after that, all notifications are turned off. Because before that, I'd find myself just on there constant, or I would feel obligated to answer something late at night rather than and if it's not an emergency too, depending on your level and the company, sometimes like I, I work at a startup. So sometimes there's something happening at 11 PM that needs to be addressed right away. And I totally get that and I'm on it, but there are other times when I can answer the question in the morning. And that's when I had to learn how to disseminate, like what needs to be done right now and what can I do tomorrow during that work time for me? So I had to figure out what are my work hours? Because there are companies, if you don't have a clock in and a clock out time, if you're a performance-based, if your job is performance-based, mm-hmm. decide for yourself, what are my work hours going to be? Or like Natalie said, maybe I work better at night and I know it. And I'm not going to say, I'm, I'm working from, my work hours are 8 a.m. till 2 a.m. Because that's just so, you know, that's so unhealthy. But you ha- you give yourself, okay, I'm going to work this many hours a day because I know that's my productivity ends at eight hours, but I'm going to give myself more flexibility of when I'm going to work because maybe I, my, like for me, my brain doesn't really turn on until the afternoon. I have to have my coffee, which is decaf. I have to go to yoga and wake up, like truly wake up. And then I get motivated and I get pumped. And then I get all these ideas like at 1 PM, get pumped, like (laughs) you know, yeah, like super pumped. Um, and then some other things that I, I had done, I I talked with my teammates and my managers about these are my work hours. Like I'm not going to be working on weekends anymore. I'm not going to be doing this communication. I think that's just being key and also talking to your teammates about it too, because the remote lifestyle working is so different. And also disseminating like personal and work and reminding yourself, even if you're friends with your coworkers, mm-hmm. they're still, you still need to set boundaries within within that. So I personally set up, what are, what do I need to get done during the day in order to be most productive? For me, that looks like I need to go to yoga. I need to meditate. Mm-hmm. I need to eat something before 12, you know, and these are like, these are my non-negotiables. Like not a granola bar people, like please like eat more than that. And not a coffee. Coffee's not a food. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that's, and and that was something I I honestly, uh, a tangent, but I didn't realize for a long time that like having low blood sugar in the morning, physiologically and mentally, give you a lot of the same symptoms as anxiety. Yeah. So I was feeling anxious like every day and I was like, what is going on? And then I was like, oh, I, I don't eat till 3 p.m. 
I have a coffee or two coffees and yeah, maybe a smoothie or a granola bar because I'm like work. Right. And then once again, I'm, I can't be productive because I have brain fog, because I'm anxious, because I can't concentrate. And so I think setting a list up of your non-negotiables for each day and what you need to do regardless. So when I wake up, I said, Kayla, you don't get to look at your phone. You don't not I'm I, I have to look at my phone because I have to turn off my alarm. But you don't get to get on Instagram. You don't get to get on Slack. You don't get to check your emails until 8 a.m. Like for me, that's when I clock, quote unquote, clock in. So before yeah. that, I'll use my meditation app and meditate. I'll go walk Winston. I'll go get a coffee. I'll get everything else ready. Maybe I'll I'll pee, obviously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then once 8 a.m. comes around, I'll begin. But I feel like so many of us literally like it's so habitual to just turn, stop the alarm, open the phone, automatically go to your email, automatically go to your Slack and jump right in because it feels like what if there's something emergent? But for me, I wake up at like 7.30. So there's nothing that I can't handle in 30 minutes. And if I know that setting myself up by meditating, by getting water, by brushing my teeth, by taking my meds and doing all those things that set me up for a better day, there's a clear difference in my days when I don't meditate and when I don't go to yoga and when I do those things, like they're night and day. So write down what are your non-negotiables. That would be my tip. Yeah. Yeah. What are, what are your non-negotiables, Natalie? My non-negotiables. Um, my non-negotiables. Well, okay. Before I go into that, I was going to say, I when it comes to productivity, because I know a lot of people that are listening to this, they're like the only way they see or frame productivity is through like the concept of work or doing work. But our self-care needs can also be something that can feed into productivity because have you ever made a checklist of the needs that you need to do for yourself and actually enjoy checking that shit off? We, I love journals where I can check off stuff that I'm doing for work. But I started to notice that my journal only consisted of like my work tasks and never included my like self-care tasks, which was like eat a breakfast that has, I don't know, a protein, a carb, a fat, it, eat like drink an entire like liter of water or go and like the small shit, like the things that we think are just like basic needs that oftentimes just escape our headspace. We look at it as, yeah, we have to get that done. No, we're choosing every single day to do that for ourselves. We have to include that in our definition of how we love ourselves, of how we make ourselves feel the best. Another thing in, in this, I would say that was a really good tip for me when first COVID started is mimicking and mirroring your commute. So Basically, before starting working from home, I had about a 20-minute commute into the city. And during that time, most of the time, honestly, since I have car anxiety, usually I was just trying to sing or hum. I was not like listening to podcasts because I just get way too disoriented on the road. And I'm like, holy fuck, let me not crash into this person that's right next to me. But I would just sit there and hum and sing. And that was like what I did for 20 minutes until I parked my car. And then I would like be like, okay, thank you. I got here safely, whatever. That's like my little ritual. And then I would walk, you know, a couple blocks to my office. And that was 20 minutes 
of self-regulation. I was humming, which humming triggers your vagus nerve in your body. So, which is the nerve that's associated with the parasympathetic nervous system. So the rest and relax. I was singing, which does the exact same thing. I literally did an action of gratitude. Like I did not notice that I did all those different things in that time when I was commuting to work. And when that, when I lost that, and when I started working from home, that those three things that I used to do for myself while I was commuting, I stopped doing. So when I noticed that, I started to think, all right, how can I implement a commute <laughs> to my office, right? In my house, literally. So instead of just like me walking into my office space or to my desk, what I choose to do now is I'm like, all right, I'm going to go for a 10 minute walk and then I'm going to go and I don't know, maybe do, I'll, I'll check my mailbox and see if I got anything. And then maybe I'll take the trash out while I'm listening to like my favorite songs or whatever. Like I try to implement those self-regulating activities that I used to do when there wasn't necessarily like the, the, the problem of working from home. So that's a tip. I would mirror your commute. I would implement commute to work and commute from work to home. So start your day with a commute and end your day with a commute, even if that means that you are literally just commuting from another room to another room. What does that look like? I have friends who literally put on different aromatherapy like scents, basically like during the workday, they only smell like citrus. And then at the end of the day, they only put on essential oils that are like lavender or something like that. And that kind of plays around with your sensory system as well to distinguish those two different settings. But to answer your question, my non-negotiables, I have a, a minimal amount of non-negotiables just because I try to make this easy for myself. Because if I get too many, then I'm like, I get disorganized. So my three, all right, let me, let's this, this ambulance, let it pass. All right. Um, it's a sign because oh, it, these are yeah. emergent. These are emergent things. Exactly. Yeah. The universe was communicating that. So I meditate every morning about 20 minutes if I can. I'd love to eventually have a meditation practice of 40 minutes, but I'm not a monk. So eventually. And then I make sure to drink at least two glasses of water, one that's like a lemon to just wake me up and one that's just like, just to hydrate because Lord knows we need to hydrate our bodies. And then my last one is I, I lotion. I just lotion my entire body because otherwise I literally, I am, my sensory system is very sensitive. So if I have like itchy skin or whatever, it like just makes me feel really like uncomfortable. And so I really prioritize calming my sensory system. I try to like look at what I'm looking at, what I'm hearing, how my body feels, how my skin feels, how, like whatever it may be. And I try to just neutralize that and create like an overall sense of wellness. Meditation does that for my mind. Hydrating does that for my body. Lotioning does that same thing for feel and touch and just like overall kind of a sense of being calm. But yeah, those are my three that I just try to make sure every single day I do. Easy enough, I think. All of them are in the same place. My bathroom, basically. I don't it, meditate it, in the bathroom. I meditate outside. <laughs> I think it seems easy, but it's easy to get away from. I noticed that this morning too. I was looking at my calendar, my planner, and I was like, I haven't written in my planner in like weeks. And I'm somebody who I have a big wall planner. I have a physical small planner. 
I have my phone, like I have a planner everywhere and I, I enjoy it because I'm, I like to highlight things. I, I have a, I'm a vision boarder, hab tracker. <laughs> I do it all. I'm a vision boarder. And yesterday, last night I did it late because I was like, you know what? Actually, I, I know I'm going to have a, a pretty productive Saturday of things to do. And like you said, I was like, record the podcast, do this. Yeah. I have to mail something, do yoga or go on a walk. Like you said, it doesn't just have to be work-related things. Anything, I, I think it just that little boost of dopamine that makes you feel good when you get to highlight it off, that productivity, especially in the beginning of the recovery journey or in the sobriety journey, you, you need those wins a little win. Oh yeah. Write down, so, take a shower. That's actually what I do. Like that it's I'm, like, please don't laugh. This is actually something that's seriously super helpful. Write down, take like when I wash my fucking hair and dry yeah. it, actually, uh, that's a massive win. Everybody. Oh my God. I dried my washing, hair last night. Yeah. Like when I say that's that, awful. And then I, and then on top of that, when I do the mental work to be like, okay, I'm going to work out. So then I can shower my hair. And then tomorrow I won't have to shower my hair. I'll just be able to put dry shampoo. I'm just, I write all that shit down because then I'm just like, check, check, check. Like I got that figured out. It's less, it's more efficiency based. It's also, it prioritizes again, like the smallest of things, right? Like happiness is created, not based on the big things that happen in life. Like happiness is actually just minute instances that we choose to actually have presence in. So when we choose to hydrate ourselves intentionally, when we choose to nourish our body and make it feel good, notice those things. When I take a bath and I put a, like a bath bomb in it, I'm like, good job, dude. Good yes. job. Or I buy myself bubbles. I'm just like, damn, uh, you are a queen of self-care right now. Self-care queen. Yeah. When, you know, in, in reality, somebody may look at that and just be like, oh, something off the grocery list. I know, no way. I like talk to myself. I'm like, yes, you did that. You picked that up from that shelf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it also goes back to those of us that suffer with like severe anxiety or panic disorder, hence the name of our... If, if you're wondering what emotionally immobile means, it means rather than being physically immobile, you are immobile due to your <laughs> mental health. And so Natalie and I both, I would call it for, for me, it's definitely a, a phobia. I, I have a driving phobia that's um, rooted in some traumatic experiences in cars, yeah. more than one car accident and also a more recent very bad motorcycle accident and so for me driving is extremely difficult i have a bubble in which i i feel comfortable driving in i have places i feel comfortable driving to and outside of that you're not going to catch me outside of that <laughs> so <laughs> i catch think me outside. That, no you won't <laughs> no you will not you will not catch me outside me inside but right? In all seriousness, it's those small things like in the beginning, especially when COVID hit and I had to redo my exposure therapy. It was like, okay, I have to walk to the mailbox. Fuck me. Yeah. It, it's like a two minute walk. But for me, that was gut wrenching. And every day I go a little farther. I'm doing it now with Winston and our walks. We're going a little bit farther down the trail. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to the next lamppost. And then, then I'm going to go to the trash can. And those are the small wins that 
maybe other people in your life wouldn't understand, but who the fuck cares? If it makes you feel good and you get to look back on your progress, there's so many of us out here who completely understand that going to the grocery store is a win, that washing your hair, that showering at all is a win, especially in the beginning of your journey. It just always reminds me of when I used to do AA and a newcomer, uh, a newcomer, a newcomer was sharing about her experience. She had three days sober and Mm -hmm. she was like, today was the first day I could put on my mascara without my hand shaking. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you don't think about that kind of stuff for those of us who maybe have longer term sobriety. But in the beginning, it's really fucking hard to just do anything. So really celebrating all wins, small wins, big wins, medium wins, and then also carrying that into your longer term sobriety. Like I still have to remind myself of that all all the time of, dude, you're driving to yoga by yourself and you're doing yoga in a hot room, 101 101 degrees, and then going in at coffee and coming home. Four months ago, you could not catch me going more than a stoplight away. Like I I was just paralyzed. So I think showing up for yourself, it's, we got you. We, We understand you. We yeah, I, I also have that like car phobia. So we're definitely a very safe space for anybody that has uh, any traumatic experiences in cars. Come join our squad. But people really like they don't understand like that. And that has mm-hmm. been honestly, it's been very difficult. Most people are like, meet me there, go do this. And people don't understand, like, first and foremost, we all have our different set of like battles and demons that we're fighting every single day. And what one person deems as traumatic might not be traumatic to another person. But Mm -hmm. my trauma is very real to me. And I know what it feels like and what I have to go through every single time. I remember when I was living in Wisconsin and driving on the interstate was honestly, and I had to take that every single day. And it was so nerve wracking for me. There was one time where they closed down all these roads because of like a event and I physically froze. Like it was the first time in my life that I think I completely broke down on the side of the interstate. And I was like, holy fuck, nobody's going to understand this. I'm going to go home and people are going to, my people are going to be like, what's wrong? Why are you crying? It just was going to take you two hours longer. And instead to me, it was two hours. Yeah. That was, it was fucking two hours. That's one thing. And then two hours of me being in a panic attack of not being able to like figure out how the fuck to get home because every single exit was closed. And I was like, Mm -hmm. Lord, I fucking hate driving. And now I have to navigate a map while trying to like drive home. It was yeah. just the layers of triggers that we go through, even when it comes to meeting our basic needs. Nobody's going to understand that but you, which means you have to notice those things that you are overcoming to be able to even do that thing that somebody thinks is so very simple, like going to yoga. No, for me, it means getting up. It means putting on clothes that I'm going to work past my body image issues. And I'm going to put those clothes on and I'm going to say, you know what, you're doing this for your body, not for how your body feels, not how the way it looks. And then I have to get into my fucking car. And then I have to navigate the anxiety that I get when I'm driving in my fucking car. Mm -hmm. And then I have to get there. And then I have to like, be able to like, get out of the fucking car and not decide to turn back around. Like people don't see that they just see point A to point B while you're also having the entire alphabet in between. So like, we see you. 
Yeah, yeah, we see you. Yeah, hundred percent. But set boundaries around that too. Like I, I, I was super ashamed, which is like such like when you think about it, it's like there's nothing to be ashamed about when no. you have mental health no. problems, issues, yeah. whatever you want to call it. And what honestly helped me is when I show up to yoga, if I see if I have a new teacher, I'm just like, hey, I just want to let you know. I sometimes get panic attacks, so I have my little ice pack. And in case I have to step out of the room, that's just what's going on. And yeah. honestly, the other day, Shannon, shout out to Shannon. She's a yoga teacher at Core Power, but she literally was like, let's do a grounding technique. And she like gave me this huge bear hug and did like this breath work with me. And then she like looked into my eyes and she gave me a kiss on the forehead and literally I almost cried because I was like, um, oh my god <laughs> this woman sees me and it it, saved, it made me feel safe and yeah. so it's so amazing though too how just for me talking about it and just saying something like changes my narrative of oh, I'm, I'm f- afraid people are gonna freak out or think I'm weird if I'm having a panic attack or I'm not gonna be safe or whatever the irrational fears that go on in the mind around this so I do that and I talk about it with my friends all my friends know my boyfriend. And, and that's another thing, like, and I think it, to wrap it up and, but to connect it back to the boundary is if you're going through a depressive phase, an anxious phase, a, and I don't know what the fuck I'm feeling phase, which is a whole lot of the beginning of an alcohol free or reduced alcohol journey. Yeah, it's okay to just, yeah. yeah, it's okay to just say, Hey, and your friends and people who love you will understand. And I do this with my boyfriend. Sometimes we'll have a date night or my, my sober gal pals will have something planned and I'll be like, Hey guys, like I, I, last night something happened or like I woke up and I am just not capable right now. My anxiety is really high and may, we were supposed to meet somewhere and maybe there somebody was going to pick me up or maybe I was feeling confident that day. So I could drive there, but then another day, like tomorrow they're all going on a big hike and I'm bummed. I'm missing it. Cause it's, we have a big group of sober women here in orange County. So if you live in orange County, California, and I'm I'm bummed, right? I have a little bit of FOMO because they're all going, but I don't feel comfortable yet going, they're going to this like hike in the middle of Newport coast. It's like up in a hill. And for me, I'm just not ready to go there yet. And they know that. So it's not, oh, Kayla can't come. Like what the heck? It's a boundary I set for myself and I don't make myself feel bad about it. And then- Instead, later on, I'm meeting up with one of them and we're going to this like sound bath meditation and mocktail thing that's going to be like so fun. So it's like picking and choosing what you're ready for because you want to do things when you're confident and it goes back to surrounding yourself with people who support your boundaries and understand where you are on your journey. And when you have that support, it leads you to success and to improve and to evolve quicker because when you don't have that support, you stagnate. And so just reminding yourself that I am deserving of a support system. I am deserving of people who understand what I'm going through. And I'm just, I, I had to write that on my vision board yeah. for 2020 that I am deserving of all good things that come to me and things that I do. Because sometimes I think like we talked about before, when we lack self-worth, we're willing to allow people to break our boundaries where we allow people to, we overcompromise 
Yeah. And you have to remind yourself that you are completely worthy of having the boundaries that you really want, whatever that looks like for you. And then moving on from there. Yeah. And also understanding, I think that the one thing with boundaries that I want to really hammer in at the very end is boundaries are not rules and they are also not walls. Like when I think about Mm -hmm. a boundary and I constantly talk about this with my clients, it is a fence that has a door that you can open, a fence that you can peek through. A fence is not immobile. It's not immovable. It is literally still, it's it's there in order to prioritize your space. And that's not going to be easily understood by another person. So don't be surprised if people that like don't understand your boundaries. You have to teach people how they can actually act and talk to you and prioritize you and love you. Like we don't immediately know how to love another person. Like you have to teach them through Mm -hmm. the way that, you know, show boundaries. So really, honestly, boundaries to me is a way and it's part of the equation of creating lasting love between friends, between partners, between you and your family. It's not something that's going to keep you away from that. It's actually going to bring you closer. I think that's uh, a perfect way to to end our podcast today about boundaries, which there are probably so many other things we can talk about. And obviously, holler at us if there are questions that you still have about this very open and wide-ranging topic. But for today, we hope that we've spread some nuggets of wisdom and that, yeah, you can take that on your healing journey. All right, that's time. We're at our end. Thank you guys for listening. If you're still here, be sure to follow us at Emotionally Immobile at our Instagram. The email for podcast questions is in the bio. So make sure to submit your cues down there. And as always, please like, comment, subscribe, all the good things. We'll see you next week.